Good morning. Everyone doing okay? Good? All right, good. Hey, so we are back in the book of 1 Corinthians this weekend after taking a break from last weekend, and there was something I just wanted to uh, mention to you guys just to kind of keep you in the loop a little bit. If you've come here for any length of time, I don't ever... I don't ever talk about how big our church is. I don't. I, I make it a point not to say numbers and brag about those kinds of things. But and I'm going to say this, and it's going to have relevance. It's not a boast. I'm just talking about some problems that we have that we're trying to find solutions for, and I want you to know that we're working on it. So uh, last weekend was great. We had uh, a really good Easter service. We don't ever promote anything or do any gimmicks or anything, and, and we had just under about 8,000 people at our three campuses, which was really good. So that's awesome, and that's exciting, and it's also uh, a, a relatively big conundrum because we don't have the space. So here's the thing. So what has typically happened before COVID is whatever we would have on Easter, we would typically average the following year. And um, that's always been the case with us. This church has grown really fast. Praise God, that's, that's all the Lord. But uh, it's always been a, a source of tension because we've never been a rich church and we don't have any more land and we don't have any more space in this building. So saying all that, if you have children in this, in this church, you know that, there, I mean, there's kids. We have more children at this church than churches sometimes even twice our size. We have lots and lots of kids here. So what we're doing, because children's space is a problem right now, especially in the nursery. If you've ever walked in there, it's just a sea of babies. You don't even know, you don't even know what color the carpet is. You're just, just babies. Um, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, you guys are procreating well. That's great. Um, but we need more space. And so what we're doing is we're building four new rooms on the Echo Wing, and that will alleviate some of the pressure, especially from the nursery. We'll move some of the older kids over there, and that's gonna help with that problem for a while, okay? That's, that's one thing. Second thing is parking is a problem here. You know this, if you parked behind some warehouse this morning or whatever, it's, we don't have that many spaces. Uh, we average on the weekends, not including Easter, about, about 5,500 people at this church. We have 450 parking spaces. Uh, so that, that doesn't work. Again, um, I'm really good friends with Brady Cooper at New Vision. Uh, and, and, and I don't know if, I need to be careful with that. They have 1,400 parking spaces over there. And so it, it's, it's just very different. And so to alleviate some of that pressure, uh, we're getting some, a little sliver of land back here. It's not much that's being donated to us. And we're gonna put some gravel back there, open up some parking back there. All of our staff is parking offsite. So if you work here, you're not allowed to park here. You have to park way off and we shuttle them in. And so that's what we're doing permanently now. We're just trying to open up parking. The third thing is, uh, as you can tell, it's, it's getting pretty full in here. We do four services. As much as I love the church and love you guys, I'm not in a place in my life where I wanna do more than four services on the weekend because I wanna see my children grow up and uh, I miss every weekend from them and, and I'm just not ready to do that in my life. So we have to figure out something in this room as well. So we're talking about different plans of maybe reconfiguring the room and doing different things so we can get more seats in here. But the reason I'm telling you all this is one, I want you guys to just know that we are cognizant that, that we're tight and, um, and, and we're working on it. And two, uh, please, please just pray for it. Pray that God gives us some more land. We'd love to purchase all this land back here. We don't have the money for that, uh, but we need to purchase some more land. We need to do some more things. We need to plant churches faster. And both of our churches did, did amazing for Easter and they're busting at the seams as well. We gotta plant more churches. Listen, this is the best problem a church can possibly have. But, but it still keeps me up every single night because my greatest fear is that someone will come into these doors and not have a place to sit. That's my greatest fear, uh, that people come in to hear the gospel and we don't have room for them. So we're doing everything we can. I just want you guys to know that. Again, it's a wonderful problem. It's, it's a good problem. Uh, but a problem nonetheless. So anyways, okay, we're back into the book of 1 Corinthians. If you've never been here, this is what we do, chapter by chapter, line by line, through the Bible. Of course, we took a break last weekend because it was Resurrection Weekend, which was, which was really great and fun. But what we talked about two weeks ago, we were in the first half of chapter 11. 1 Corinthians is a letter written from a guy named Paul to a church in Southern Greece in about 54, 55 A.D., this was a group of Christians, small church, about 50 to 150 people, they, they estimate. This was a church that had um, prosperity. 
It's a church that had freedom. It's a church that had access to the word of God. They had access to good leadership. They, they had proclaimed to have given their lives to Jesus. So they had access to the Holy Spirit. The problem with this church was, is that they were re relying less on the word of God and they were relying more on culture. And they were putting more of an emphasis on the culture of their society. And because of that, the church was starting to fall apart. So in the first half of chapter 11, Paul addresses the church about authority. He speaks of gender, of, of masculinity and femininity, authority and how men and women relate to each other and how men and women relate to God. And what we discussed a couple of weeks ago is that we live in a society now that is attempting to kind of refashion a God in our image versus us submitting to how he designed us. And because of that, again, all kinds of problems are ensuing in our culture right now. Now, what we're gonna do today, we're gonna finish chapter 11, starting in verse 17, and it's mostly going to be about communion, which we do every weekend here. It's about the Lord's Supper, it's about communion, but it's bigger than that. What Paul is going to be talking about in the second half of chapter 11 is how we worship together as a church, and not only how we worship together as a church, but how we live as Christians. And that we are to be constantly examining our lives and comparing it to how Jesus wants us to live. That we are to, to constantly be evaluating how we're doing and comparing it not to each other, but to what Jesus wants, us, wants for us and how he wants us to live. That's what we're gonna focus on this morning, okay? So you should have got a notes handout. You can't go wrong if you start off a sermon with, with love feasts, right? You know it's gonna be good. So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in, has everything I'm gonna say in there. Everything will be on the screens around the room. And um, if you have the Experience Community app, just click on sermon notes and, and everything is right there, okay? So we'll jump into this today. Uh, I hope you'll be encouraged. I hope that, that um, it'll be challenging to you and see where the Lord takes us, okay? Good to see you this morning. It's nice to see the sun, isn't it? Old friend. The sun, warm weather, because man, the cold sucks. And it's just nice to, it's nice to have some warmth. It's good, all right? Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for everyone in this room this morning. Thank you, God, that we have the freedom and the liberty and the opportunity to come in here and, and not just worship you, Lord, but to break open the Bible and to learn from you. God, I pray that you keep your hand on our church this morning. Lord, we need it. We need you, God, to, to lead us and guide us. We need strength and encouragement. Lord, we don't just pray for our church, though. <clears throat> we pray for every church in Murfreesboro. We pray for our other campuses, God, and we pray for the churches in those cities. We just pray that we can be the salt and the light that you want us to be, God. Lord, I pray that everything we do today, that it, that it not only blesses us, but it honors you. And we pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read a little bit and let's break it down. Uh, right after the book of Romans, you have the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 11. We're starting halfway through in verse 17, okay? This is Paul writing. He says, now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one sits, eats his own supper, so one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. Exclamation point, right? That's important. So in the first half of chapter 11, if you weren't here two weeks ago, Paul actually praises the church in Corinth for, for kind of getting this lesson on authority. He goes, you guys actually do a pretty good job with this, right? You understand masculinity, femininity, the relationship between couples, the relationship between them and God. You're, you're doing for the most part pretty well with that. Now, this part about communion and worship services, uh, they're not doing so hot. And that's why he says, I do not praise you with an exclamation point. Now, the problem was this. <clears throat> when the Christians in Corinth would get together and do what we're doing right now, worship together, two things were going wrong. One, 
They were abusing communion, which we do every weekend together, and they were abusing the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is what chapters 12, 13, and 14 are gonna talk about. I'm really excited to teach those to you, but that's, these are the two problems that were happening in worship gatherings. So Paul had got news, I'm not sure exactly who from, that there were divisions in the church, there were abuses during the worship service. But here's something interesting. He says, I believe it in part. What that shows us is, is that he researched a little bit. He heard an accusation and before he, he made an assumption, before he walked around and gossiped and slandered and got an army together to go you know, talk down to people, before he, he just jumped out to get them, he researched it. He went to them and addressed the problem with them. Now, this is just a good life lesson for us, that if someone comes up to you and says, hey, someone said so-and-so, or they did this or did that, before we go tell other people about it, before we make it a big deal, let's go to the source. Let's just say, hey, I heard this, is this true? Can you give me your side of the story? This is not just a Christian principle, this is just being an adult, right? This is how we should do things. And so Paul also says this, he says, I also know that it is necessary that there be some kind of division or faction. Now that doesn't mean that within the church, there should be one group of people that's favored more highly than another group of people or one group of people that are better than another group. That's not what he means. What he means that with this kind of faction or division in the church is the church has to make a distinction about what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, who is living according to the word of God and who we need to focus on because they are not living according to the word of God. It doesn't mean that God loves one, more, one group more than the other. It's that we do have to make a distinction between what is right and wrong. It's what this Bible does. So we have to establish what is true and what is false. So here's the thing about church, right? Back in the early days of Christianity, churches were much smaller than they are today because it was new. It had only been around for, for a couple of decades at this point when this book was written. And so during this time, most churches were about 50 to 150 people. They were, they were small. That's about how big the church in, in Corinth was. And because the, the church is supposed to do communion, celebrate the Lord's Supper, and I'll talk about that more, what they would do in the early church, because they could, because it was smaller, is they would basically do like a massive potluck. They would all cook a bunch of food. They would bring a bunch of wine. They would bring a bunch of bread. They would get together and they would have what they called love feasts where it was a community thing. You would eat a bunch of food and at the end of it, you would bring some wine and you would bless it and you would bring some bread and break it the way Jesus did at the Lord's Supper and you would remember the crucifixion. So what was happening though is two problems were arising over how they did communion. Side note, uh, usually at next classes, uh, I let people ask questions at next class and, and, and not every month, but every couple of months, someone will say, why do you guys do communion wrong? And I'm like, well, there's no right or wrong way to do that. And, and what, what that typically means is someone was raised Catholic or Lutheran or Anglican and they do a huge ceremony where they present the wafer and everyone comes up and drinks out of the chalice. And that never happened in the Bible. There's no direct instruction on how to do communion. We are just instructed to take it and to take it with pure hearts. Besides that, there's no real instruction on how to take communion. There's no way that any church could do it the way they did it when Paul wrote this letter. Unless you guys have five hours today and you brought some food, right? Um, there's no way to do it like this. So what was happening is at these love feasts, people were being inconsiderate. Remember, this was like a potluck dinner. And so what was happening is the church would get together, they would have these love feasts, and the love feasts were to kind of emphasize community. We're, we're family, right? Not only does it emphasize community and family, we are celebrating and we are recognizing Jesus's death. But what was happening instead is people would show up early to the love feasts, they would run over to the best food and they would get you know tons of the best food and eat a bunch of it and they wouldn't leave enough food for the less fortunate. And so people who were privileged were coming in, eating a bunch, and then people who were not privileged were, were getting left with no food whatsoever. So why is this important? Get this, try to wrap your mind around this principle in the North American church. Basically, the love of others and the reverency for God in the church had been replaced with a self-serving and flippant attitude. 
Try to imagine such a thing in the United States that people would come to church and it wasn't about learning more about God and blessing others, but it was about what they could get out of it. Imagine such a scenario, if you will. This is what you live in. This is what has happened in the United States. It is no longer about what I can contribute back to God and celebrate about God and bless those around me. We have created such a consumeristic mindset in the North American church where we walk in and we look around and we're like, mm, I don't know if I'm feeling the vibes in this place, right? God doesn't even have shoes on up there, you know? Like we look around at people around us and we, we, we're so nitpicky. And if it's not exactly what we want, we just jump ship and go to the one down the street because we have become connoisseurs of church culture and it has become very consumeristic and it's not the way it's supposed to be. It is not the way it's supposed to be. Very flippant very self-serving, but that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. The other thing that was happening in the Corinthian church is certain demographics of people were being treated better than other demographics of people. So in Roman society and in Greek society, there really was no middle class. There was the haves and the have-nots. And in Roman society and in Greek society, it was very common for the ones that have to ridicule and it was socially acceptable to ridicule and make fun of those that did not have anything and to kind of leave them out in the cold. And so unfortunately, this mindset from the culture, the society had crept into the church. And Paul says, you guys come in and, and some people don't have anything to eat and then you're getting drunk. This person has no wine to remember communion. This person has drank eight glasses of wine. This is a problem. There is this divide. And here is the thing about the church. The church and Jesus Christ is to be the equalizer of humanity. There is no class system in Christianity. There is no you're better than me in Christianity. When you come into this door, all of us in this room are on an equal playing field with the Lord. That may not be the way out there, but it is the way in here. It's the way it should be in here. So in the church, we're to all be equal. We're to, we're to welcome everyone equally. We're also to be generous. Listen, this is not socialism or communism. This is Christianity. That if I have more than enough and you don't have enough, I am to give you some of what I have. Not because the government mandates me, but because my heart loves you. Yeah. And this is how we should be living. And here's the other thing. We are to not let the culture creep into the church. The church is to set the example for the culture. Amen. We're supposed to do it the other way around. Yeah. And the problem with the church in Corinth is, is they had gotten these things backwards. And so look at what Paul says. Paul basically tells the inconsiderate and selfish people, if you're gonna act like that in church, Paul says, stay home. Don't come to church. If you're going to look down on people, if you're going to be greedy, if you're going to take a lot and not let other people have anything, Paul says, stay at home. Isn't this so different? than the culture that we have created in the United States with church. We just pander, right? We just give people more and more of what they want, not what they need. And Paul says, if you're gonna be greedy here, be greedy at home. Because here's what he is making the point of. It is impossible for one to say that they love Jesus if they do not love all people. Amen. All is the big word there. We often love people who are like us. And the Bible says, even non-believers can do that. It's easy to love people like you. The trick is to have so much of the Holy Spirit in us that we love people that are drastically different from us. And though we may not always respond well to people, I don't always respond well to people. We have to humble ourselves and we have to pray that God puts a love for people in our hearts. Because listen, to say we love God and don't love people, it is you cannot divorce the two from each other. They are one and the same. That's why Jesus even said, the greatest command is love God. The second one is similar. Love those around you. Treat others the way you wanna be treated. Let's keep moving forward, okay? For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after the supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the problem hinged on the fact that the people coming to church had gotten too comfortable with the ceremony and they had forgotten just how important the worship gatherings were. Again, sound familiar. So the weekend service is not only a time for you to come in and hear the word of God, the weekend service is not only a time for us to come in and worship, the, the, the weekend service, what we are doing right now is a, is, is a momentary break from the chaos and the confusion of the world. That's why we call this a sanctuary because it's a safe space. It's a place where we can come in and we can take a breath, right? Where we can pause for a moment, get away from work, get away from the pressures of our financial situation, get away from the government, get away from all the, the messiness of our culture. And we can be around people who are like-minded, focused on similar things. We can worship, we can recharge. This is important. And whenever I hear Christians say, that I can follow Christ and be a good Christian and not go to church, my answer to that is always find one passage in this Bible that even remotely supports that. It does not exist. It does not exist. The reason why is God did not create us to be lone rangers. God created us to be communal. Well, it's not easy. Well, you're around people and we're messed up and it's not easy, but we are to work at it and we are to try we are to not be alone. There is always a correlation, always, always, always a correlation with people's lives falling apart and their lack of church attendance. Every time, every time. Well, Corey, how do you know? Because I've been doing this for a long time. And many people come into my, my office or they give us a call or they meet with someone. My life's falling apart. Are you coming to church every week? No, we haven't been, right? We haven't been. And there's always a correlation. Listen, you need, I need what we're doing right now. You need this in your life. Everyone needs this in their life. And so when we get together, we always take communion. And so taking communion doesn't have to be a, a complicated, arduous process. It doesn't have to be a, a huge, long ceremony where, and I'm not knocking on churches to do that, but it doesn't have to be like that. Communion is a very solemn, it's a humbling time that we are to address sin, that we're to reflect on Jesus and we're to thank God for what he's done in our life. And so Paul was basically saying, look, like you, you don't have to like have a master's degree in divinity to, to take communion. Just remember what Jesus did. Remember that he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. It's symbolic of my body. That he took the cup of wine and he blessed it. And he said, this represents the blood that I'm shedding for you. He said, just, just remember what Jesus has done. Recite that if you want to, or just, just remember the simplicity of the Lord's Supper. So here's the other thing. We're not only remembering the cross and what Jesus did on the cross when we take communion, we're also remembering that his blood opened up a new promise, a new covenant. What that means is Jesus's blood being shed represents, that, that wine represents the fact that Jesus shed his blood, this is what I talked about last weekend, and that paid for the spiritual debt of humanity that, that opens up the door that at any time, at any time by anyone, if we will humble ourselves and ask God to forgive us and save us, he will do it instantly. Amen. That's what the new promise is, that we don't have to earn it. We don't have to make a, a, a sacrifice of an animal. We don't have to go through arduous processes. If we will humble ourselves and say, God, I'm sorry, save me, he'll do it. That is the new covenant. That's the new promise. And that's what that wine represents when we take that. Not just that he shed his blood for us, but now we have salvation, that we have forgiveness. So what communion is, and this is why we take it seriously here. This is why you need to take it seriously here. Communion is a tangible reminder, a physical reminder of the most important thing one will ever hear. That Jesus loves us so much that he gave his life to purchase our souls back from evil. That we are redeemed. What communion is, is an announcement, not only to ourselves, but to the world around us, that there is only one solution to our problem, and that's Jesus. Your marriage is falling apart. Corey, what do I need? Jesus. Your, your finances are a mess. What do you need? Jesus. 
your, your contentment, your, your hopelessness, or your anxiety, your fear, whatever the case may be. If you trace the problem down to its root, it's a distance from God. That's why the Bible says Jesus isn't a way, he is the way. He is the truth, he is the life. What is the meaning of life? Jesus is the meaning of life. What is the truth? Jesus is the truth. So communion is a representation that there is only one pathway, one pathway to salvation, and it is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only way that we are to ever see the Father, that we are to ever make it to heaven, okay? Now listen, so the reason Paul talked about that is because communion is very, 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 very serious. And if communion is very, 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 very serious, then we need to examine ourselves before we take it. And that's where Paul is going right here. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. But whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, this is so good, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give you instructions about the other matters whenever I come. So if communion is a very, very serious thing that we do, we also need to be serious. Whenever we partake in communion, today you will have the opportunity. Whenever you partake in community, if you take it and have unrepentant sin in your heart, you are guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. This is a very serious statement. This may be the most important thing you hear this morning. If we choose, <clears throat> listen, if we choose to partake in a ceremony meant to remember the cross while consciously doing things that put Jesus on the cross, we're acting extremely foolishly, Amen. sinfully, dangerously. What we are doing is we're saying, hey, thanks for doing all that. I'm just gonna keep doing the things that, that made you go through that barbaric act. It's very disrespectful. It is sinful to do this kind of a thing, okay? So repentance is more than just saying you're sorry. Repentance is a conscious turning from sin. So it's not enough. Let's say you struggle with, with, with hatred, right? You just hate people and you act hateful. You cuss people out periodically if they upset you. And so every weekend you come into this place, we're about to take communion. God, I'm sorry I cussed out that coworker again this week. And we go and we take communion and then we do it again. You do it again the next week, you have not repented. You may have asked for forgiveness, but you have not repented. Repentance is a turning away. It is a turning away from sinful actions, a turning away from sinful thoughts. So if you look at pornography every single Saturday night, come in here on Sunday morning and say, God, forgive me, my bad. Take communion and then do it again. You're truly not repentant of that action. You have to move away from that. So when we live in sin, yet partake in communion, we're dishonoring Christ. We are dishonoring the salvation and change that the cross represents. In other words, when we approach communion, we must do a self-examination, not just what I did last night, but how I am living. Am I living in a way that is in accordance with the word of God? And so listen, we can repent and we can make a decision to turn away from that, but that has to be a serious choice before we get up and we take communion. So here's the other thing though. Every single weekend when you come in here, communion doesn't have to be this big, long repentance thing where we lay on the floor and weep and cry because we keep falling to the same sin. Communion should be actually a time that is celebratory, that we should be celebrating, where we connect with Christ, where we celebrate the fact that we can be saved, right? That we are saved. That we can celebrate the fact that we are, are unified with other brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And so here's the thing. It's good to always examine ourselves before we take communion. But, but if you're actually living the Christian life and you're living righteously Monday through Saturday, you don't have to come in here every week and, oh God, I did it again. Just, just deal with that sin throughout the week. Build a relationship with Christ. And what is fascinating is every time we pray, it doesn't have to be this remorseful, awful repentance thing. It can actually be a time of joy and contentment and church can be uplifting and positive and even taking the communion. But that comes with living righteously. There are so many people who are depressed and anxious and, all, and that's because there is sin in your life. And if we would eradicate the sin and let God help us with that, we would live in a lot more fulfillment and enjoyment and contentment and peace. Now that doesn't mean you have to be perfect. You're never gonna be perfect. Until Jesus comes back or you die and go to heaven, you're never gonna be perfect. But what we are is we are sanctified. That means that what happens is when we are saved, we are taken off a road that leads to damnation and hell, and we are put on a road that leads towards life in Jesus Christ. And we are free, the Bible says in Romans chapter six, from our former selves and from the bondage of sin. We are free of that. And so we can be forgiven, we can be refined, we can constantly become better and better. What that means is this, if I'm now on a new path that leads to Jesus, the closer I get to Jesus, naturally, the further I, away I get from evil. So though I still may make mistakes, I don't make as many mistakes. I don't make the same magnitude of mistakes because I'm gravitating towards Christ and moving away from what is evil. So when we take steps to repent and move away from evil things, we not only honor God, we just live better lives. We're more content, we're more at peace. But the problem with our culture, and I'm not saying any of you in this room, you're a wonderful church, but any of us can fall into this. We seem to, to over time, take it all for granted. We become irreverent in our faith. So Paul is talking specifically about taking communion without reverency, but this goes for all aspects of our life. When we take the instruction of the word of God for granted, when the Bible straight up tells us how to live, but we say, ah, you know, this was written a long time ago. Things are different now. When we take this instruction for granted, when we take the grace of God for granted, we've done a wonderful job in the United States of making the grace of God cheap. Well, I got saved when I was 14, so I can live like hell. Not if you're truly saved, you can't. The Bible addresses that. Should we sin more so grace abounds? Paul goes, absolutely not. But in American culture, we make a lot of excuses for sin. You know, one of the wisest things my former pastor told me, there is never an excuse to sin. I don't care what you say. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your story is. Well, Corey, you don't know how bad my life was. I don't care. You have the Holy Spirit, which trumps that. You guys are awake back in this corner, right? I keep looking at you, but doing, okay, all right, awesome. That's the thing, is we have the Holy Spirit. So regardless of what you've been through, regardless of what mistakes, regardless of what abuses and atrocities you've experienced, if we have become Christians and have the Holy Spirit of God in us, that is bigger than all those things. We can live the way we're supposed to live. We take the instruction of God for granted. We take the grace of God for granted. We take the provision of God for granted. We live in the most prosperous, free nation that has ever existed. And we may be the most entitled, inappreciative people that have ever existed. Doesn't matter how much we have, it's never enough. That guy has more than me, so I need to go steal it and take it for myself. We've become careless, we've become irreverent. And by doing this, we have placed ourselves in a position of judgment by God. That can mean judgment in this life and that can mean eternal judgment if we do not change. So here's the thing, Paul says we're disciplined. God disciplines us sometimes because he doesn't want bad things to happen to us. Paul writes, we are disciplined so that you're not condemned with the world. That sometimes God not only allows things to happen, God sometimes does things to you to, to whip you back in shape, to whip us back in shape, to get us on the proper path. And discipline has become such a bad word in our culture nowadays. We, don't dis we believe discipline is an evil, awful thing. And it's not, it's a good thing. You guys ever been around kids that their parents never disciplined them? Oh, yeah. Hey, listen, it's okay not to like those kids. <laughs> Seriously. 
They're not likable. They're, they're monsters. They're terrible to be around. And we've gone so far in our society, we have like free range parenting where parents are like, you know? And we let three-year-olds decide lessons on biology and mental health and all kinds of things that they're not equipped to deal with because they're three. And because of this lack of discipline, they grow up to be people that, that if you don't like them, other people hate them. And this is poor parenting. And that's not the way God operates. In fact, Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, listen, as many as that I love, I rebuke and discipline them. Let me tell you why. Because God doesn't want you go to, to, to go to hell. I don't know if the, the, the fires of hell are metaphorical or literal. I don't really care. I know that hell is a complete absence of God. And if the Bible says all good things derive from God, whatever hell looks like, if there's nothing good, it's gonna be very, very bad. And so God wants to save us from that. And we often get offended, right? People come into the church and I read a scripture that I didn't write and they get super offended because I read something that God gave to us and they get upset at that. How dare he? How dare this church tell me that that's wrong? And we push discipline away. And the whole time it's God trying to keep us from running off the cliff. I do this to help you because I love you. I care about you. Just like you spank your child. He spanked his child. I did. I spanked my oldest two times. Two, she's 13. Two times. And one of them, she was a wonderful kid, still a wonderful kid. Because when she was about three, she almost ran in traffic. And I grabbed her and popped her. I did not like that. She cried. It hurt her. It hurt me. But I don't want her to die. And that's how God thinks about you. That's why discipline is there. Right? So to avoid judgment, Paul says the church had to do a couple of things. One, you have to start putting other people first. <laughs> because when we honor people, that honors Jesus. Now again, compare that to our society, right? Think, you know, Black Thursday or whatever it's called. Black Friday, that's what it's called, right? <laughs> Eventually, we're, gonna, we're not gonna have a Thanksgiving at all. It's just gonna be us shopping and killing people over TVs. But, but imagine that, right? Think about how much we cut in line or cut people off or shove people back or I gotta get mine and me first, me first, me first. And Jesus said, those who are first, you'll end up last. And those of you who choose to be last out of humility, you're gonna end up first. Amen. This is the principle of Christ. In honoring others and putting them first, we honor Jesus. Second, Paul said that the church has to be generous. Like I said, this is not socialism. Socialism is, is benevolence mandated by the government. That's not what we are. We are Christians, which, is, which is, is benevolence and helping people out because we've been blessed, not because we have to, but because we want to. That's what we do as Christians. We have been blessed, right? And so we are to be generous. So this is what Paul is getting at, that we have to intentionally, on purpose, live holy lives. That not only worship services like we're doing right now, but our lives in general, we are to aim to honor Jesus. We aim to love all people. We aim to respect other Christians. And we are called to respect and love non-Christians. And we are to proclaim and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we are to do when we gather together. And it's what we're supposed to do on Tuesday when we're in the cubicle next to the most annoying person in the office. We are to do, I don't, not here, wherever you work, you may have that person, right? <laughs> this is how we are called to live. So if we have been talking about self-examination, let's, let's do an examination. Would we consider ourselves considerate people? Would we consider ourselves considerate people? Do we strive? Do we intentionally try to put other people before ourselves? I'm not saying you're always gonna get this right, but are we considerate of others? If you're asking yourself that question, can you honestly say that I'm a considerate person? I put others before myself. What about this? Do we love all kinds of people? Whether they vote dramatically different from you, whether you're way on the left and they're on the right or vice versa, whether they believe differently than you, whether they have wronged you, 
Do we love all people? You know what a good word for that is? Altruistic. Would we consider ourselves to be altruistic people? You know what that means? That we have a selfless concern for the well-being of other people. The best definition of love, in my opinion, is that I want the best for you. I want the best for you. Regardless if you hate me, regardless if you've hurt me, regardless if maybe I even need to keep a distance because it's not safe to be with you, I want the best for you. That is true love, that I want the best for you. Can we say that we are altruistic, that we want the best, a selfless concern for other people? Can we say that? Do we acknowledge that God has given us more than we have ever earned? Do we acknowledge the provision of God? Would we say we are generous people? Well, Corey, one time I gave $10 to this guy that needed it. Do you, do you, do you believe that to be generosity? Would we consider ourselves to be generous people? Let me ask you this. And guys, I'm not trying to be political or any of that. I'm trying to be very Christian. When is enough enough? When do we have enough to where we step back and go, okay, it's time for me to start pouring out versus constantly consuming? When is enough enough? Do you want to, the, do you want to know one of the great markers of a society on decline? When people have become lazy and apathetic because they have too much. You can research history. The Dutch, the British, us. It's when we think that we just need more and more and more and more. Are we a generous people? Has our faith become, here's this word again, flippant? Has our faith become mundane? Not just coming to church, but our lives in general, our Christian lives in general. Is this just something we do on the weekend if the weather's not too good? Is it something we do on the weekend as long as there's no baseball game? Is it something we do on the weekend as long as it's not football season? Is it something we do on the weekend when times get tough and I need to get bailed out by Jesus again? Hey, Santa Claus, Jesus, I need help. Has this become mundane? Has this become flippant? Has this become irreverent? And in that specifically, what about communion? I love you guys and I want you all to take communion. If you are genuinely repentant and genuinely examining yourselves, I hope that all of you do it. And I hope you do it with reverency, right? And guys, I love you so much, but, but whenever I, I do the offering for communion and some of you are like, here's our time to bolt out and beat the traffic. There is no, listen, there is nothing more important that you will do today. Nothing. I don't care what it is. Well, I got a birthday to go to. Don't care. There's nothing more important than you taking communion this morning and remembering what Jesus Christ has done for you. So be, so be respectful of that. Be respectful of those around you. And not just communion, anything we do. When we sing the worship songs we sing and we talk about, God, I'd give you all. Do we mean that? Do we mean it? Do we have a reverence? Do we have an understanding of the magnitude of what you and I are doing right now? What we're discussing, what we're talking about. Let's take it a step further. Is there unaddressed evil in us? Is there sin in our hearts? that we need to address, that we need to let God get a grip on, forgive us of and remove from us? Do we need to turn a different direction? Are we even remorseful of sin? Again, we live in a Christian culture right now. People say it all the time, well, ah, we all make mistakes. Ah, we all do this. There is never an excuse to engage in evil. There is never an excuse to break the commands of God. There is never an excuse to sin. I don't care what the situation is. Like I said earlier, regardless of all the bad things that have happened to you, and, and let me tell you, all of us in this room have scars, all of us. But the Holy Spirit is bigger than scars. The Holy Spirit is bigger than situations and circumstances. We have to be remorseful of sin. If we truly love Christ and we do things against him, that should bother us. Amen. We also have to be open to discipline because we have to understand that God loves us. We have to understand that, that, that God does these things and allows things to happen to us to correct us because ultimately he doesn't want us to be condemned. Oh, that's offensive. Don't be so easily offended. God is trying to correct you. He's trying to rebuke you. He's trying to put you on the proper path because he loves you. And do we understand that knowing the path of salvation and freedom 
but choosing to live in sin that dishonors God. And if you're not careful, it's eventually going to condemn you permanently. That we cannot consciously live in rebellion to our Savior and be saved. We can't, right? So I want to end on a positive note. Take advantage of what we're doing right now. Not just this morning. We have been given the opportunity all the time. We have direct access to God. It's what we talked about last weekend, that we can commune with God at any time, not just during literal communion. You can commune with Christ in your car, at your house, with your family all the time. We have access. Take advantage of that. And if we will take advantage of that accessibility to God, it doesn't just bless us. It will bless your marriage, bless your children, bless your neighbors, bless your community. It will do all that. But listen, here's the thing. We have to be intentional. We have to do it on purpose. We have to be alert and aware. That's why St. Peter wrote, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion looking to devour you. And we live in a society right now that is both literally intoxicated and metaphorically intoxicated. We live in a society right now, it's not just about legalizing marijuana. I hope you guys know that it never ends there. You can go to Portland, Oregon right now and legally do cocaine, LSD, heroin, and methamphetamines. You can legally do that. Look it up. You can fly to Portland, buy cocaine legally, do it on the street right in front of a cop, and no one will do anything to you because it never ends, because sin never stops with just a little bit. And what happens is, is we have become inebriated. We have become intoxicated, not just by drugs and alcohol, we've become intoxicated by affirmation. I read an article in The Atlantic yesterday that talked about children right now are more depressed and hopeless and suicidal than they have ever been since we have kept up with mental health. More than they have ever been. During COVID, 44%, listen, that's two fours, 44% of all teenage girls thought about suicide during COVID. That's almost half. I got two girls. That's almost half of all girls. They're more depressed, more sad, more upset than they've ever been. And they say the largest contributing factor, this is the Atlantic, it's not a Christian magazine. The largest contributor to that is social media. Hey, but I'm really glad that your 10 year old has that TikTok. Good for you. Because we're intoxicated with being known. We're intoxicated with affirmation. We're intoxicated with somehow being a celebrity. We're intoxicated with maybe getting our 15 minutes. And because we're intoxicated, because we're inebriated, because we're not aware, because we're dull and our senses are not what they need to be, boy, the devil's having a field day with us, isn't he not? Be sober, be vigilant because you have an adversary and he is looking for you to not be awake. He is looking for you to not be alert. That's why, listen, you were not created to live haphazardly. You were created with a purpose. You were created with intentionality and we must live in such a manner. What that means is this. We must learn to occasionally stop if this is nothing else for you, for an hour and a half a week, you can come into this room and you can escape the chaos that is outside these doors. Pause for a second. Sit down. Turn off the phone. Turn off the distractions, right? Meditate for a second on God. Reflect. Self-examine. If there is sin, repent. Not just here. Do this periodically throughout the week. Slow down. Know that you are loved and you are valued. That's why King David wrote in the book of Psalms, be still, be still, be still, be still. Turn off all the noise. Turn off all the distractions. Turn down all the escapism. And think for a second and reflect for a second and pray and know that God is present and that he loves you. What we need to do with our lives, right? And what Paul was getting at today in this lesson is that we must consider not just Jesus and we must consider not just other people and we, might, we, we must not just consider our lives, but we do all these things because God considered you and I. 
While you were at your worst, God was thinking of you. While Christ hung on a cross, he thought of us. He considered us. And because the, the, the creator of the universe considered us, we must consider him. We must consider those around us. We must consider how we are living. Think and meditate and reflect and pray. Block off time to read this book. Well, Corey, I don't have time. The average adult is on social media four hours a day. Tell me you don't have time for church, prayer, or reading the word of God. Tell me that. Even if you went to church every day for an hour and a half, you'd still have two and a half hours to play on Facebook. Tell me we don't have time. It is a priority issue. It is us living life haphazardly and carelessly and irreverently, and that's not the way we're supposed to be. You were created so much more dynamic and so much more, you were created for so much more than what we are living at right now. But we have to do life on purpose. We have to do life on purpose. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and maybe you are not a Christian and you found yourself in here this morning, if you are either not a believer or maybe you are a new believer and you have some questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Jonathan is up here. He does all of our discipleship here at the church. If you have any questions for Jonathan, he'd love to talk with you. We're not afraid of questions. We welcome that, okay? We may not have all the answers, but, but maybe we have a couple, okay? The second thing is we have men and women on both sides of the stage that would love to pray with you. Anything. It can be family issues, job issue, health issue, money issue. Maybe you are struggling with an addiction or something that you, you can't kick and you feel like you're defeated, whatever. Come up here and let someone pray with you. The Bible says we're only two or more gathered in my name, right? You're not supposed to do this alone. Let someone help you. Let someone pray with you. And then the third thing is all the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table. Everything we talked about today, there's the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the bread and the wine. Everyone is welcome to take that as long as we have examined our hearts and as long as we are repentant for the sin that is in our life. Man, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I, I, I just wanna overemphasize, your life is a bigger deal you're, you're, you, you were created for more than being popular. You were created for more than just owning a big house or owning the nicest car on the block. You were made for more than just a casual existence. You are fashioned in the image of God. You were made with a purpose. You were made, you were made to be used by the Lord in whatever way that God sees fit. I think some of you may have forgotten just how valuable you are. You are invaluable to God. We must live, we must live in that manner. Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you, Lord. We all struggle, Father. We all have made mistakes. God, Lord, help us. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit touch everyone's heart in this room, Lord. If there is sin in our lives that we need to address, God, please forgive us and address that. Lord, if we're just not living up to the potential you gave us, God, Lord, let us take that step and lead our families and our marriages and our coworkers and whatever influence and affluence you have gifted us, God, Lord, let us use that in a way that glorifies you and blesses other people around us. Let us be considerate, not just of you, God, but of people around us as well. We love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. Bless all the people in this room, Lord, until we meet again in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.